You're listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg, joined by my co-host Leon. Let's do this! And welcome to the 93rd episode of Ace Comicals. Uh, today it's just me and Leon. Hey, hey. Yeah, so how have you been, dude? <laughs> hey, not too bad, man. Like, as of anything, in this uh, quarantined, diseased world, uh, time is like uh, contracting and expanding at the same time. And uh, one day becomes two weeks and vice versa. Yeah, how about so... Yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing okay. Um, I have finally managed to get back to my LCS and pick my stuff up. My, my, my local comic shop reopened finally. What was it like? So, oh, man, it was, it was all right. The, they had, you know, the, the two-meter distancing going on, tape on the floor. Everyone mm. has to wear a mask, which is cool because it's all safe and everything. And if you pick something up or touch something, then you have to put it into a onto a special shelf so they can leave it for a bit out back and then put it back out when it's safe kind of thing so yeah 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 everything's everything's done they've got like safeguards in place and everything so it's it's safe to go in there which is cool so i was able to go in and pick up 10 weeks worth of comics 10 weeks which wasn't as much as i thought it was going to be actually because <laughs> i was i was expecting to come out with like my own short box or something but yeah, yeah actually it all fit into a bag so I guess it's I guess, like uh, free comic book day. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's because I slimmed down a massive amount before the before the, this whole COVID crisis hit anyway. Yeah. So I I had already like cut my pull list down and I'd started going digital for a lot of it. Hmm. Um, and it was nice to go in there and have those conversations again. And, you know, like it was good to be back. And, and they were glad to see me as well. Um, you know, it was, it was nice to be able to, to chat with, um, with the, the guys that work there again and just, just shoot the shit about comics. Yeah. I bet and they're just glad have, to be open. Yeah, they are. Yeah. It's, it's just nice to have that kind of like that community spirit back, I guess, if you understand. Yeah. Was the place covered in spider webs? No, <laughs> it was nice and clean. There were no ghosts? Uh, no, no, no ghosts, no ghosts, but <laughs> Because I, I live in Leicester, it's taken, it's like been like extra time. So we've, yeah. we've been, we've, we've had like added, added time for, uh, <laughs> for lockdown. So it, it's even, I had to wait even longer than the rest of the UK. And yeah, it was, it was nice to get back in and, you know, like walk home with all my comics and stuff. And it was cool. It was, I, I had, I picked them up on my way home from work um on my because i've had a week I'm, I'm into some holiday now so i'm having a week off because uh, it was my birthday on friday so Belated happy birthday thank you yeah um so i picked up my comics the day before my birthday and came home and it, it was just nice and i just felt so so much better having to having been able to do that and so much more relaxed and i don't know why that made such a difference but it did and mm. I've been sitting catching up on my Turtles comics and I've been able to massively identify with Mutant Town. So what's going on with Turtles at the moment is uh, a bomb went off in New York, a mutagen bomb, a mutagen bomb that turned everyone 
like in a certain radius into mutants. And then what they did was they walled that part of the town off and they're keeping them quarantined. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that was happening before. This is like something that was like happening sort of post issue 100, right? Mm. So we're now at issue 107. And I've been catching up on that because I, I picked up this huge stack. So I've had like months of turtles to catch up on. So my first job is catching up on all my turtles books. So I've been catching up on that and I'm like, I know how this feels. This is like being in <laughs> Leicester. <laughs> it's like, except they're still allowed to go out and they have music shows and things. And we don't have any of that. We just have this, this walled up ghost town kind of thing. Yeah. Cause what part of uh, like New York is um, it? Do they specify? downtown manhattan oh downtown manhattan wow i can't catch a break yeah it's around that kind of area i think because it's like um they have like these like music venues and things which i guess are supposedly i think is that where cbgb's is uh i don't i don't know I mean, yeah, I don't know either. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know New York that well. I just know that a lot of Turtles takes place. Turtles takes place in New York and they mention Northampton and they go to Northampton for a bit. And I know that a lot of it probably takes place in downtown Manhattan, like a lot of things do. So, yeah. But they have like music. There's a music venue there and there's a metal show that they go to in one of the issues, which is kind of nice. Um, and it's good fun. Yeah. So, I mean, other than that, not really been a lot going on because I've been just trying to keep myself occupied at home. So <laughs> I've been plowing through Netflix um, and uh, I've watched the entirety of Transformers War for Cybertron now, the first chapter, Siege. So what is this, a Netflix thing? Yeah, this is the yeah. Netflix War for Cybertron. So what Netflix have done is they've done this original animated show, a Transformers show called Transformers War for Cybertron um, and it's in three chapters and it's the Transformers War for Cybertron trilogy and the first six episodes is called Siege and that's chapter one and it's okay it's a cool show with some cool Transformers designs much more in line with my tastes as far as Transformers go because as you all know from listening to me on the show I prefer things closer to the generation one look I, I like them chunky and clunky <laughs> um, and I would probably say that I'm a bit of a lapsed Transformers fan because I haven't really kept up with what's been going on in media with Transformers recently, aside from the odd few comics. Um, and I know, as a lapsed Transformers fan, that to some people this will be offering nothing new. So, like, it's another story set within the war on Cybertron. Um, and, like, it's, it's doing things that have been done time and time again. It's not, it's not doing anything groundbreaking or new with Transformers. It's just, it's just another story that is following those beats, if you get me. Mm. The war on Cybertron, etc. And they've had, there's been like war for Cybertron stories before and things. And this is all stuff that has been, um, these are all story beats that have been used before in various different places. Like even down to some of the um, like um, characters, uh, arcs and uh, betrayals, etc., etc., that happen during the show. It's all things that is that are well-known things that have happened before and aren't surprising anybody that would know things about Transformers. But for newcomers, it'll be a blast. Um, 
it'd be a great entry point for anyone for anyone new to Transformers if you wanted to check it out. It's really, I mean, it's a fun show anyway, and it's it's quite nicely animated, and I enjoy the designs. I enjoy, um, I enjoy how mean and snarly Megatron is in this. He's really cool, but. Like I said, if you're a longtime Transformers fan and you've kept up with everything hardcore, then this is going to be nothing new for you, but it might be cool for you to watch anyway because it's more Transformers. But if you're someone brand new to it, then check it out because this will get you on board with Transformers. I guess is the way that I look at it. Yeah. So like yeah. someone like me who only watched G1 and, say, the movie, like that era, uh, it sounds like it captures a bit of the feel of that era. It does, yeah, it does. But like modernizes it a bit. Yeah. Did you ever play the um, Xbox 360 games? No, I, I think I played a PS2 game. Maybe actually, maybe I played a 360 game. I remember playing a demo or something. Because there was these like War for Cybertron 360 games, hmm. which were really cool, actually. Yeah, for sure, definitely in the look of the show and the designs and everything else. Um, I would say that. Definitely for people that, I mean, if it's, it kind of be, it would be like a nostalgia trip, I guess, for people like that, that yeah. maybe you've just watched the G1 stuff. Um, and um, it'd be a good avenue back into Transformers if you're a lapsed fan, like mm. I am. Uh, I mean, I, I think I kind of fell off the wagon largely because of the base stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think I just I had my Transformers and I just wanted to just like this is my Transformers. This is what I like. I like the G1 stuff. I like the G1 toys because they're cool. Um, the comics are good, and that's as far as I want to take it. I think mm. um, I'm not deep into the fandom as I used to be. Like I used to be like a prolific collector and everything. I've got like a loft full of the toys at my mum's house, um, which. But yeah, I need to. Um, this is so, this was a. It was a cool way back in for me. I guess it was something. So, that was were you keeping up to date with stuff like Beast Wars and stuff like that? I had been. Hmm. Um, I watched some of Robots in Disguise. I, I think like where I truly stopped um, watching episode, like keeping up with it properly, was probably around the Transformers Armada time. Hmm because the toys were cool and then I kind of just fell off and then that was that it. was around the, the first second movie yeah. wasn't it Armada Energon sort of time yeah I mean the, the movie stuff didn't do anything for me at all um it wasn't my Transformers because <laughs> they weren't <laughs> I don't know just just something something about it wasn't great but I I was like really into Beast Wars and stuff and I I think it was more than anything what attracts me to Transformers it's not the um the story itself actually it's the toys hmm. um I really They're really cool like toys. yeah I I just really like the design of them and I like looking at them and I like the mechanics behind it you know like being able to like transform things and stuff like yeah, that yeah like I, think about that. that's still quite mind blowing that yeah. they made toys that could uh withstand kids uh, regularly changing them from um, from robot to vehicle and they like held up yeah well that's japanese engineering <laughs> but it was that's a story for another time because obviously these were originally a, another toy like the way transformers came into the west um it was another toy line in japan yeah and they brought it over and they 
like rebranded it kind of thing. As was a common. Was it? Yeah, that was its beginnings. Um, and that was, uh, but there's a, there's a documentary you can watch on Netflix about that. The toys that made us, mm. <laughs> which is, it's got all of that in it, but yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, other than that, um, oh yeah. Silent films. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, and the color of outer space, which I finally watched as well. I mean, I'll collect my thoughts on that and come back to that on a later episode because I want to watch it again a couple of times, but it's a really good tribute and adaptation of the original tale. And I need to watch it again to fully form my thoughts on it, but I very much enjoyed it and we'll probably come back to it in a couple of episodes. Like I say, yeah, that'll be a good one because Rahul's watched it as well. So it'd be a good one for us to pull our thoughts together. Yeah. Um, love me some Nick cage. <laughs> so yeah, Nick cage hamming it up. Yeah. Um, you've been watching anything recently. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I had, while you were being arty farty, I was uh, being arty farty too. The, like the the true art, Greg. <laughs> the art you for the what? modern age. I was going to say, I feel like you mention these far too often. These films. <laughs> no way! I, I I have not spoken about any of these movies in, in a long time. I can assure you that. <laughs> but uh, I, what what happened is that I had. Uh, so in the run-up to like Endgame and The Rise of Skywalker, uh, I had like watched all the movies in the row up, up to that point, and then watched the last ones in the cinema. Blah 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 blah. And then since then, I've had Disney Plus since it launched in the UK, and then I've rewatched the last movies of each of those again multiple times. In the case of Endgame, but then now that we're at the stage where it's the co- the collection's complete. Started. Uh, I started to watch them uh, like out of order in and like uh, like just random movies uh, that I was interested in, which I've spoken about on the previous cast. But like, um, I think I'd watched Captain Marvel just because I was like, oh man, I uh, don't know. Why. I was just in a in a hunger for like an okay movie that I'd only seen once or twice. So it's like I went back watched Captain Marvel, and then that had me thinking, man, uh, I want to watch Wonder Woman. I haven't really watched, seen that movie. I missed it in the cinema. Uh, I think I've seen it, see, I'd seen it once before. And I was like, okay, let me go back to that. And I watched Wonder Woman. And uh, yeah, my feelings on it were completely the same. Uh, except that I, I find that I, I think I soften a bit on movies on on, especially like, blockbuster comic book movie four quadrant stuff i think i soften on it the more watches go because um it's not like i have high expectations going in but i liked i I just find more stuff to like and the stuff that i don't like as much bothers me less but it's still there type thing and so like uh, with wonder woman i felt the same about it i'd probably give it a three out of five or something like that um and it's got some fun stuff in it i don't really like the showdown of the bad guy blah 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 um but i don't know it's a fun movie to watch especially when you contrast it with like a a lot of the marvel movies which uh, have quite a muted color palette and quite um 
low contrast uh, images and like Wonder Woman's got some like cool uh, like they actually use color and uh, I know that I, th- I find with the the DC movies they go for more of a, a mythic thing which suits the characters uh, even if they don't really stick the landing on a lot of the story and character stuff but what watching Wonder Woman that got me thinking oh that like maybe nah no no may maybe Mm, no, no, no. Okay, maybe I should watch Batman vs Superman. And it was a weekend <laughs> evening, uh, and I was just chilling out. And I thought, why not? Let me watch Batman vs Superman, and I don't do things by halves. So obviously, I watched the ultimate cut again, which is like three hours. And I rewatched Batman vs Superman, and it's it's really interesting watching it again because like, so I've got I don't have a lot of love for the movie. But um, I don't. I think what's what's happened is that in the run up with all this uh, Snyder verse stuff, as we'll call it, the the DCEU, but it was mostly shepherded by Snyder's story choices and casting from Man of Steel onwards. Um, the problem that I had with these movies is that I think that. Uh, like we said during the Watchmen episode recently, that the guy has got a good eye. Um, he knows how to give you a beautiful shot. He, he knows how to recreate a panel. He knows how to film action, which is kind of rare for someone in Hollywood. Um, and he he's very good at a, a, an iconic visual. Uh, even if it's a, a little bit flat, it still looks cool. And that's what he's great for. But what he's not good for <laughs> is like character, and I think the big issue I had at the at the time is that with Man of Steel, uh, which after BVS I went back and watched it, so yeah, I did it in reverse again. But like, um, there's there's so many good ideas, and I can see what what they're what they were going for and like trying to do, and and I think at the time it it was oh, it was bad, it was a horrible pill to swallow because it's like. This isn't Superman. That's what it feels like. like. This isn't Superman. Why? Why was he doing this? Why is he acting this way? And then that's doubled down on in Batman for Superman, and then it's compounded with Batman. And it's like this isn't Batman. Like, what is this? This is just nihilism, boring nihilism, uh, but like uh, packaged up for kids. Like, what is this? But um, now that we're past that, and uh, We've got like a new Batman being made at the moment. It kind of helps you step back a bit and you can be like a bit less precious in terms of, because the way how it feels sometimes, uh, especially before this the MCU got to where it was, is that this could be the last one for a while is how it was. So if they mess up, the, if they mess up this Spider-Man movie, we're not going to get another good Spider-Man for ages. That's how it kind of it feels. So when like, you're sitting by and you're like, oh, we're wasting a decade on these bad interpretations of these characters that I like. It feels bad. But now we're sort of past that, uh, especially past Justice League, though the Snyder Cut will be released next year, um, <laughs> that you can sort of step back and then treat them more like comic book runs, where it's like, oh, this writer and artist did this run. Um, and like at this point, who cares about canon? But it's like... Um, I can I can now appreciate the movies as like different takes on these characters while not worrying that why is Batman killing all these people 
and I know he's killed, blah, 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 but it just feels in what they're building up to, it, it just mismatched, especially having him come back, but you miss a bunch of his life and he's fighting Superman for some reason. It just felt like shortcuts to try and catch up the MCU. But if if, if we judge them on their own thing as like these different takes on them, then they are quite interesting movies. It is interesting to do a Superman movie where it's like the refusal of the core trying to find his own way uh, thing. And I do really like, I still really like the intro of Man of Steel. Uh, set on Krypton and the fall of Krypton stuff, and like all the stuff with Zod, uh, I still I still don't like how Superman isn't established in the world before other aliens come. So he instead Zod does that stupid convenient message to every country in the world, and then suddenly Superman has has to go out and find him. That kind of sucks. But then like, and I I've never been a fan. Like I've always been two minds about the destruction of Metropolis because. One side is, why isn't he getting these people away from the city? But once I put... Now now viewing it as someone who's like, this is just the, the nihilism take on Superman, uh, on Superman, then I can be that, uh, then I can just enjoy the other part of me, which is like, <laughs> this is the closest thing I'm going to get to a Dragon Ball Z movie. <laughs> 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 and like, so, so watching it in, uh, in that lens and not caring about the the civilians of, of um, Metropolis. It, it's, it's interesting. I, I still think it's... Um, I think it tells us a lot about where we were uh, at the time um, as a society and what we how we were trying to deal with these characters and how after the, um, the Chris Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, everybody thought there was only one way to make these movies. And obviously that's compounded in, in BVS. But, like, there, there's a lot... There's a lot that I've said on cast and off cast about BVS that I don't like. But when viewing it as a, this is just a, a, a run that uh, Zack Snyder and his cinematographer, uh, writer, and uh, I guess um, Chris Terrier and David Goyer as well are the writers on it. But like, if you treat it like that, like a run, then it is interesting because, again, someone just gave them 200 million just to blow stuff up and watching it from that thing is like there's there's a lot of uh like cool visuals to do it. and i still still to this day i will say that um snyder's one of snyder's best inputs is the cgi capes because it, it looks cool yeah. but like um it, it, you, you enjoying it as just like nihilistic thing where they blow up the capital and all this stuff then it's just like uh, okay but but it's a hard movie to love because for all the stuff where it's like, oh, it's trying to do something deeper here. It's trying to talk about uh, like heroes and worship and stuff like that. Um, that stuff just falls apart when they have stupid stuff like the Martha stuff or like um, uh, just uh, dark side or just Diana getting off the plane and be like, oh, I'm going to be Wonder Woman. Stuff like that is just, uh, this is dumb. <laughs> like, I, I was willing to take you on your own. Um, on your own terms and then you just pulled me out again but yeah i mean all in all it's um it's been a in, in i'm gonna say enjoyable retrospective uh i'm not gonna watch suicide squad again uh <laughs> and i think that's far enough removed from snyder i don't need to and the next time i watch justice league it will be the snyder cut so uh, and uh, I'll, I'll probably watch aquaman and and um Shazam again, but I feel like they're way more removed, so that's why I didn't really include them in this 
the Snyderverse yeah. retrospective. But yeah, yeah. Have you have you watched them again anytime recently? Like these um, three movies in particular. Yeah, actually, I've um, not recently, recently, but a few months ago. Hmm. Um, I'm a BVS apologist, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> nobody's um, perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get into that now, but. <laughs> um, yeah, me, me and Sophie quite enjoyed BVS and we really like Wonder Woman. Um, not too hot on Justice League. No, uh, that's understandable. Yeah. Um, I really like Aquaman, actually. I thought that was good fun. Yeah, I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed Aquaman. Yeah. Um, I'd say that Wonder Woman and Aquaman are yeah. the best of the DCEU currently. I think I quite enjoyed Man of Steel. I think I I enjoyed the way the film opens and I like the stuff with the you know him trying to keep his powers under wraps when he's on the uh, oil rig and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff was cool. Um and the little bit of uh, Chris Cornell that popped up in there when he <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. So that that's like playing into my thing anyway, but yeah, I I yeah, I've, I I quite like those films. Um, and when obviously when the Snyder Cut rolls around, we'll probably get deep into it anyway. Yeah. Because we're probably going to watch the Snyder Cut and talk about it on here. In fact, I can guarantee we're probably going to oh, watch you know, the we, Snyder we, we have to. We have, that's yeah, going to exactly. be a cultural event. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean that with no irony. That cultural with a capital to... C. <laughs> yes. That, that is going to shift the axis of the, of the planet. The internet oh my God, is going yeah. to stop. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. And I really yeah. hope that the Snyder Cut is amazing, to be honest. You I know, hope the, Snyder, the Snyder Cut is just the anti-life equation. And you know yeah, it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, after 2020, I'm ready for it. Bring it. <laughs> Snyder is. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I was saying, I'd been... This kind of like uh, feeds into one of the comics that we read today. So I'm going to talk about my little silent film ex excursion now. So... I've been watching um, some silent films, like uh, I'm talking films that are like nearly or are a hundred years old or over a hundred years old, which is quite mind blowing when you think about it. So these are um, sort of like films from the 1920s, um, silent classic films, German expressionism, that kind of thing. Uh, one of the films that I watched is a film called, uh, Hexon, which is, uh, the wit that Hexon is the Swedish word for witch. Uh, and that is called the witches or witchcraft through the ages. Um, I was looking for, um, silent horror movies when I was doing this. So this is me looking for something spooky, trying to spook what, what, myself. Yeah. What got you on this track anyway? Um, it's a long story. Uh, it starts <laughs> with, um, a real Ghostbusters episode called the cabinet of calamari. Okay. Um, and from there, it's just me on a wiki walk and deciding that I wanted to check out some silent horror movies. And, uh, I started it with, um, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which we're going to come on to in a moment. But um, this was uh, Hexon, um, which was a 1922 silent film about witchcraft and the persecution of witches through the ages. It draws a lot of info from the Malleus Maleficarium, 
which is a book that served as sort of guide for Catholic inquisitors on methods of torture for obtaining confessions and uh, from so believed witches and also methods of execution. Um, it was directed by a guy called Benjamin Christensen. And for a time, for its time, I can actually imagine it had quite a progressive view because the film looks at how fear and hysteria of the witch hunts possibly stemmed from superstition and a misunderstanding of mental illness, among mm. other things I wager. Um, it has horror sequences blended in with documentary-style demonstrations and explanations. Um, and it has quite a sympathetic view towards the mentally ill for its time. Um, and it talks about, towards the end of the film, how maybe, yeah, this was, you know, the misunderstanding of people that were mentally ill and these people need to be treated with compassion, etc. And we have sanitariums for dealing with them now, which back then sanitariums were still horrible, horrible places. Um, and, uh, I mean, we're talking, we're still pre lobotomy, by the way, because the first lobotomy didn't take place until 1935. And that was, that was, well, it was called a leucotomy back then. Mm. It wasn't called a lobotomy. It didn't get called a lobotomy until an American guy took it and ran with it, um, yeah. and caused a lot of damage in the process. Um, there was a, a Portuguese neurologist called Antonio Igas Moniz. Uh, is credited with inventing the lobotomy and he won a Nobel Prize for it, which they tried to revoke because clearly inflicting brain damage on people is not fixing anything. Um, I mean, these guys had no idea what they were doing. They were just taking parts of people's brains out. And yeah, yeah. It yeah like it's, just yeah. experimenting on people. Yeah, it was horrible. But um, yeah, so I mean, we're still before all of that. Um, so obviously things aren't great for people that are mentally ill, but this film has a, has a sympathetic view for its time, I think, um, considering it's nearly a hundred years old. Um, and it was quite interesting to see, um, like how they did horror back then with like costumes and the, the effects they used and things like that, because they used a lot of, um, what looked like paper mache models and, and makeup and things. And it's actually quite effective. Um, it's actually, it's actually a really good little piece. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. Um, other than that, I watched, um, the cabinet of Caligari. Um, so yeah, in my recent discoveries of silent cinema, um, I take an interest in silent horror movies and I've been sort of slowly working my way through a list. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I watched it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And subsequently I discovered it has a comic adaptation published through Amigo Comics. Um, which is a Spanish independent publisher that publishes creator-owned comics. Um, the adaptation is solely the work of Juan Diego Olmos. Or Olmos. Um, what the art does here is, like... So you read this as well, right, Liam? I did, yes. Yeah, so into the comics. Um, so, like, what the art does here is it expertly captures the twisted and fraught nightmare vision of the 1920s German expressionistic classic. Um, and it's like this stark black and white exaggerated expression, this warped perspective as if everything is closing in, all the buildings are bent round and things like that. the only way I can describe it. And this is probably how most of these paintings were made. These expressionistic paintings and these, these expressionist things is like somebody with Anxiety has got a mad absinthe drunk on. That's <laughs> <laughs> You see where I'm coming from? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So 
<laughs> so that's my take on it. So if I just give you the blurb from the comic, which basically describes the premise of the film as well. Uh, town called Holstenwall. The carnival has arrived to Holstenwall and with it, the mysterious sideshow of Dr. Dr. Caligari and the sleepwalker Césaire, the somnambulist who can foresee the future and a shocking wave of murders terrify the city and will take young fiance Frances into uh, Frances into a spiral of death and madness. So it's about this, this young man um, and his trip to the carnival and uh, the carnival arriving in his hometown with this very strange uh, sideshow of this uh, sleepwalker that can supposedly tell the future and the kind of like weird nightmare that kind of spirals out of that with these murders that are going on in the town. Um, and this, uh, this character called Dr. Cal uh, Cagli Caligari, this, um, this enigmatic kind of like sideshow host slash doctor type thing. It's just everything in this film, uh, in this, in this comic is, is like, it captures the spirit of the film perfectly. If you ever, if you get the chance to watch the film, please watch it because it's, it's absolutely excellent. But, um, down to the, the way they use the makeup in, and lighting in the film, um, because the comic is in stark black and white, there's no shadow and the film looks exactly like that. Um, I don't know if that is intentional or if that is just a symptom of the equipment that was available at the time. It's really effective. I, I believe it's like intentional in ways while using the stuff at the time because the makeup was done to accentuate the like uh, shadows and stuff like that. It's really effective. And um, the way that translates to the comic is really good. Um, the complete is it just I want to get into the complete strangeness of the somnambulist because it's sort of for me it taps into some kind of like deep primal fear of being in an unconscious state and at someone else's command like the whole tale is told here across two issues and it is gorgeously alive and just this this weird twisted figure kind of like lumbering around under some kind of control in this kind of like permanent sleep state there's just something completely nightmarish and strange about that something that still resonates today even though that film is a hundred years old like even though th this is a hundred years old that fear still translates today this is something that still keeps and and still can still produce an effect on the audience now i guess the years haven't dulled this um and yeah, I mean, I, what's your opinion on that, Leon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because um, so like with the the film, uh, I've seen the film twice, and they were both within the same period uh, back when I was in school. Um, so this is like last time I saw it was around maybe seventeen years ago or something like that. Maybe yeah. So almost two decades ago, last time I saw this um, this movie, but this movie's a classic, and I haven't rewatched it again um, yeah in the run-up to this podcast, but I do want to. Uh, but yeah, this movie's a classic, and uh, the the thing that always stuck with me was um, obviously the German uh, expressionist uh, like visuals, uh, all the all the set design, um, all the these uh, matte paintings for the backgrounds, and just this this whole reality which is uh sharp and jagged and 
has you sort of uh, at an at an angle, um, and has you uh, not quite on sure footing, and as you said, like high contrast, big shadows, um, all of that is the stuff that stuck with me, as, as well as them using the term "sonambulist" like a million times, which always always um, chuckled me because it's a funny word to say. But like um, reading the book, what I thought the book did amazingly straight away um, was the use of because it's like a black and white comic, but it's like negative because the pages are black and uh, it's like the yeah. white is used to create the images amongst the black, if you know what I mean. And that gives it that uh, instead of it just being like monochromatic, it does give it that high contrast, uh, big shadowy visual, even though, as you say, there's not... Um, yeah. It's not like shadings used or anything, think anything like that. So it has this really striking look, and just certain panels are good at like recreating, um, but not fully mimicking um, images from the film. Uh, and like everything is because it was obviously a silent movie as well. Everything's quite broad and big, and um, uh. Like to, it's it's composed to give a striking image because uh, every, every all the images uh, speak more than a thousand words. They 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 have to convey so much in between the titles, and uh, I think they do a really good um, job or, job of it here while not going over the top. Though so part of me was like, oh, I, I I could do I could deal with some more of this. Like, give me some, give me more. Um, uh, perpendicular uh, sets and stuff like that. And by the time they got to the yeah. rooftops, I was like, "Yes, yes, yeah, this is the yeah. stuff." Because that's the stuff that's burnt in my mind, the the rooftop chase. Um, but like, yeah, I think they handle it well. And like, one of the things that I forgot, having not seen it in twenty years, is the framing device. So I was, uh, I almost was thinking, like, "Oh, this is a cool way to to do a comic based on this." To add this framing device, and then I got to the end, I was like, "Oh no." That was in it, <laughs> but like I think it is really good because, um, like I said, it doesn't just feel like, yeah, this is the movie. Here's a comic of the movie. Mm. I think it does um, strike its own path and it works to yeah. the strengths of the comic book medium, while being mm. influenced by the strengths of the cinematic medium. And I think that what what you get is a is a is a is a good marriage of of those two things that uh and this is all me just talking about the form but like i think that all does elevate the the themes and the general concept of um this this story of really i know it's like because the way I was speaking to you about it when we, when you had told me you were watching yeah. it is that like um, it's like this awful like dark puppetry um, uh, with like uh, with like an eye into like uh, the occult because obviously not obviously but the the somnambulist is able to tell the future and da, 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 da. but like the idea of it where which is backed up by all the the maison scene is. Uh, how the whole thing feels like a 
a dream state. Um, just yeah. it, things are quite hazy, and it's people trying to make sense of what's going on. This is what I mean when I was saying, like, imagine you've had too much absinthe, and you you go to sleep, and this is this is what you have playing on the back <laughs> of your eyelids until you wake up, kind of thing. It's like that's how I view it, anyway. But yeah, this this whole this whole fraught nightmare vision. What uh, is apparent, and what like comes back is all the the things to do, like the theming. Because if you remember when this came out. It was like uh, it was after World War One, and like, there's been. I, mean, I remember I watched this in school, so we, we we did media studies on it and stuff. So like from what I remember of that time, there's a lot to in there to do with like um, sort of pushback against authority and um, uh, like uh, the. Sonambulist Cesar sort of being like a stand-in for like soldiers who are uh, who are like forced into places by like politician Caligaris and commander Caligaris to to do the bidding of them, and it's sort of that lack of sort of that loss yeah. of humanity as you're uh, sort of commanded to go out and kill. Um, there's a lot of uh, like I think that one's quite quite naked. In, in terms of it, it's it's uh, re- relating to it, and the 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 Caligari figure himself is quite um, he's like tyrannical, but also sort of mischievous, uh, and yeah, it, it, it's weird because because once you add back in like the framing device things, it does also add like a uh, another sort of twist on it because it's also this this idea of um especially considering when it came out it's this idea of like creating this own reality for yourself and how uh yeah basically means that all of life can be subjective to a degree because um if you are sort of trapped uh, as you feel trapped in an asylum um you'll grab things from what you, from your surroundings and create a reality which uh, seeks to to make sense of it all for you uh, and I, I do like um, i do like how this Shutter is like an early example of that <laughs> but yeah it's um yeah yeah it, it just i i like the way it's been adapted i like the page layouts i like the dialogue choices i feel it works fantastically well in the comic medium and i think it does do the film justice um, for me, it captures the spirit quite well. Um, there's something so cool about the fact that the film is a hundred years old and it can still produce such an effect on the audience. Like me when I'm watching it and the comics, the same, it's this, this is a hundred year old story, mm. um, adapted from a film and adapted in such a way as to retain, um, the effect of the film. Um, and the years haven't dulled it and it just i appreciate it for that reason i appreciate it for the fact that the years have not dulled this at all like it is still as sharp as ever in in the way that it can produce an effect on its audience and it's like i mean you can watch i mean things that were frightening 
like it's it's strange because you can watch like a, a, a you can get a horror story from the seventies and you can read it now, and it's not as it's like it's like we've become desensitized to things, but we've not become desensitized to the ideas that are put forward and and the the the, the nightmare that is put forward in this film. Yeah, and I think that speaks to like for me personally when it comes to horror. The stuff affects me most is the the stuff that is more psychological, and yeah, exactly the stuff where you can sort of bring in parts of your life to it. Um, so I've, I'll never be scared. It's going to vary for everyone, but I'm never going to be scared of like a masked killer, uh, like hunting me down yeah. and taking my friends out one by one. That's or, or yeah. like some unstoppable walking machine um, doing that. But then uh, the idea of like uh like uh, slowly losing your grip on reality stuff like that is is scary where like it's not so much supernatural elements uh, having an input in your life but it's like your brain making you think the supernatural elements are having it like yeah. elements like that because it is so believable because it happens but it's also it's it's scary because it's um i think it links to that whole thing as well of um you know, like everyone's obsessed with like thinking, are we in a simulation or not? And yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> if, if that was to be found out that we were, obviously it would change uh, everything because there'd be definitive uh, knowledge that we have no control <laughs> of anything. And uh, I think that's uh, like a scary thing with, when it comes to psychological horror because it is a case of yeah. like, uh, what if uh, you lose your grip on reality or worse so uh, reality loses its grip on you and yeah. you go flying yeah um so yeah that is the cabinet of cagliari um the cabinet of dr cagliari yeah put some respect on uh, his name he got that phd yeah yeah or did he <laughs> um, <laughs> read the comic or watch the film and find out but yeah the, the comic's fantastic I, I recommend it to anyone um so this is by Diego Olmos, uh, and this is published by Amigo Comics, which are a uh, Spanish independent outfit. So go check that out. It's cool. Um, yeah, and I got into high art through cartoons. So <laughs> <laughs> because I, I watched an episode of the Ghostbusters called The Cabinet of Calamari as a child. And uh, I kind of like fun bit of trivia the name was based on the cabinet of dr cagliari and um the film the, the the cartoon itself the cabinet of calamari has like some really cool nods to surrealist art it's got like um some stuff about uh like some some dali nods in there and things mm. with his uh his like melting clocks um and it's just it's just really cool um and there's as also the ghost of houdini's in it so yeah get you some uh some history of magicians performing and escape artists and such moving on from there um we have a book called lost soldiers which is something that i read now only one of these so far it came out um last week so that would have been wednesday the 29th of uh no Yes, Wednesday the 29th of July. Um, and so this is a war story. Uh, you could view it as a deconstruction of the Punisher, 
um, it's about the effect that war can have on a soldier and the guilt and the trauma that soldier carries for the rest of their life. Uh, the story takes place between the characters, uh, main characters' days in Vietnam and their fight. The, these, these two mercenaries, these two private contractors, now uh, working in Juarez. So they started off in Vietnam and now they're fighting cartels in Juarez, hmm. um, circa forty years later, which will put it around two thousand and nine. Um, and I remember some things going on around oh eight oh nine, uh, a lot of activity between the U.S. and Juarez around then. Um, there's um, these two, I can only assume they're private contractors and mercenaries. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I tried to do my research, but I couldn't find any official U.S. government or U.S. military um, activity, if you like, or any reports of any news reports or anything like that about that stuff happening around there. So um, these are two veterans with a brotherly bond that they've carried all the way through and also within that they are bonded by the shared trauma of being in Vietnam together and, you know, the killing and, and how you never leave that behind and everything yeah. else. So if I read you the blurb, so the blurb is literally Vietnam, 1969, Juarez, 40 years later, three men tied by the war they left behind on collision course with a new one. And uh, one of these men is a clear Punisher analog, but I'll, I'll come, I'll come through that in a moment. So, it's a meditation on masculinity, on the lot of the warrior and PTSD. Um, it's the brutality of war and how it becomes something that you can't leave behind, something you can't quit, and how you carry the guilt of killing and the horrendous acts with you, how you become a ghost of your former self among other ghosts, how each kill or act of violence will sort of permanently tarnish your soul, how you have to detach yourself from it to survive and, and how you have no other option, I guess, in some ways. There's no time to grieve or make choices. You follow orders or be killed and you are damned by your actions in your own mind for an eternity after. And the fight to escape it and to find something better is also there as well. That's another another kind of like branch in this thing and the kind of the, the, the want and the need to leave it behind. So... This book is is striking in more ways than one. The art is very striking, and the way that it flicks between Vietnam and um, 2009, and the way that in memories and moments of heated action, the color wash over the panels is like the angry fire of Hades. Like, so as uh, it, the, the violence escalates, the colors it becomes a more heated palette. You get a lot of reds. Um, and you can hear the ring after each gunshot and you get to experience like the narrowed, hyper-defined adrenaline vision of uh, one of the characters, Hawkins, um, at, when he's in the middle of a firefight and afterwards and, and how it affects him and uh, seeing the death of his comrades and things like that. And I do love the way that the book deconstructs antiheroes like the Punisher and even shows us what I consider to be a Punisher analog, uh, a character simply referred to as Burke. He looks like Frank Castle, he's got like the, the boxer looking face, mm. you know, like the bent nose and everything, yeah. the black hair. And I guess you could, you could kind of view this book as a reply to Punisher, um, platoon. Um, was that one from last that. year? Yeah. We talked to, I talked about yeah. it. I think it was called, cause I like my Punisher. Yeah. Punisher the platoon. Yeah. 2017. That was not last year. So two years ago. Wow. That's three uh, years yeah, ago, we, Greg. Three years ago. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, but I'm, I'm sh we covered it on cast. Um, what is time anyway? Leo? What is time? 
but yeah, it's um, you could view it as a reply to that, where Punisher the platoon um, was telling the story of Frank Castle's first kill and his days in Nam, leading, leading leading a group of soldiers, and it was it's them talking about him. Uh, so these soldiers are meeting up for a drink in a bar, and they're telling stories to a to a reporter or somebody who's writing a book about Frank Castle. Um, and you could view it as a reply to that, I guess, in, in this first issue at least, where um, it feels like um, a maybe more realistic view of that rather than them singing this guy's praises. Like, because a, a character like that, a guy like the Punisher, a guy like Frank Castle, would be quite zealous and reckless. So what they've done here, this guy called Burke, he's, he's a brutal, unflinching man. He's a bully, he's stone cold, he's unfeeling, and he's willing to sacrifice his own men uh, in this story from, from what we see. And it, it feels like it's... Um, this, is, this is kind of like what the Punisher would, would be in the real world, if you understand me. Mm. Like a kind of a more realistic view of a man like Frank Castle and, and a more... A more uh, Rounded? And... and, and yeah, a more rounded view of a man like Frank Castle and, and possibly how things may, you know, a man like Frank Castle would actually function. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, the whole thing is very cinematic in its presentation. It has some, and, and the realism in there and the shadows it uses and everything else within the panels. Um, the pace of it is great and it doesn't lose you at all as it switches from one timeline to another. So you're able to keep up with it and you don't have to go back and forth. Like sometimes I find that when comics flick between two timelines, page by page, um, when you're dipping in and out of people's memories, sometimes I find I have to go back to go forward. So I have to go back a page and, and go forward. It kind of takes me out of it a little bit. You have to like anchor yourself a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure if that's just me or if that's something that a lot of people experience, but I, I sometimes find that I have that difficulty. But with this, I didn't. It was seamless. It flowed for me, which is really cool. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought it was an awesome read and uh, it's going to be five issues long. So that's going to be something to look out for. For like, having read the first issue, what overall, um, would you say that, the take it offers about war is novel or is it a refinement of previous like war is hell anti-war uh, stories you've seen before i would say it's more in the war is hell queue mm. um, but like, it's a, along the lines of other vietnam films yeah. that you may have seen things like apocalypse now that type but like, of just stuff. like using that stuff to sort of hammer home the message yeah, yeah, and and and, but less less about the actual being in war and the acts that men commit while they're at war, and more about what being at war does to a man. Yeah, the toll. And what the acts, yeah, what what the acts a man commits in war, in time of war, the killing, the the other unspeakable acts, what what that leaves you with years later. Mm. So it's more more about that, and more about the the trauma and the ghosts that you carry with you if you like, like each, you carry each kill with you. Like you don't just forget about these things. You know? Yeah. Every time you take a life, 
that's part of your soul gone as well. I kind of, I kind of think is the message here. Yeah. So yeah, these, this is, this is how it is. Um, I can't say it's, uh, I can't, I can't say it's the happiest reading in the world, <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe if you're, if you're having some, uh, cause obviously it's a tough year for everybody. Maybe if you're having a tough year, maybe, maybe, uh, stay clear of this one. The thing is though, um, uh, have you, have you mentioned like previously, uh, some people who, uh, like people who are like me find catharsis through stuff like that. So it might be the actual antidote yeah. to, that people are looking for. Yeah, I mean, I I feel that I have to um, measure this stuff out because I I don't find comfort in it because I feel it it kind of triggers me. A yeah, bit. yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's a good story though. It's interesting, and uh, it's um, it's going to be worth following it for the five issues. I think definitely. Uh, your creative team there. So this is Lost Soldiers, and you've got uh, Alesh Cott. As the writer, we've talked about some of his other books. Um, Luca Casalanguida is the artist. Uh, Heather Marie Lawrence Moore is the color artist here. Uh, Aditya Bidaka is the letterer. Um, you've got Design by Tom Muller, and Ryan Brewer is the production artist. So that is Lost Soldiers number one, published by Image Comics. Go and check that out. Um, on from there, another one by Image, uh, out on the same day. Uh, this was like sort of like a, a double bill from Image. Uh, two new releases uh, that I checked out on Wednesday. Um, and I believe you checked this one out as well, Leon? That I did. That I did. And this is called... Now, how do you say this? Because I want to say Hedra, and I'll go into my reasons why. Is that to do with like the shapes? Yes. Yeah. See, like uh, reading it, even though uh, my whole mind has been consumed about how this is about like shapes and geometry and stuff my default is saying hedra but i think you are correct yeah so i i defaulted to hedra and then that became hedra <laughs> so yeah i i did the thing but then like i've i've basically i've been forcing myself to call it hedra all day <laughs> <laughs> so that i don't go on cast and go hedra <laughs> but no yeah it's um yeah so hedra this is a wonderful little one-shot book uh primarily plays with a 35 square grid yeah it is so it's wild like super experimental the, the um, only reason it gets away with that uh not to knock you yeah. off what you're saying is because uh it's uh the, the right the artist is also the writer because no writer <laughs> dare ask another artist to do this <laughs> yeah so uh can you imagine a script for 35 panels per page <laughs> it's unbelievable Panel one, blue. <laughs> Panel two, plain blue. Panel three. <laughs> yeah, oh man. So yeah, it's a um it primarily plays with a 35 square grid. It is uh page by page. Um it is silent, there's no dialogue. It's just the power of the images to fuel your mind. It is very experimental. Uh there's a lot of geometry and clean, simple lines going on, a lot of cool concepts at play here. Uh this is prog comics. Um, <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm 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 coining this as prog comics. Um 
So if I give you the blurb from the image site, in a glorious exploration of the comics medium with echoes of 2001 A Space Odyssey, Flash Gordon, Chris Ware and Mobius, a lone astronaut leaves a world ravaged by nuclear war in search of life, but what she finds is beyond all explanation. Now, I don't see the Flash Gordon stuff. Um, I could, I think I can, I can, see, can the... see that in the design of like the rockets and stuff. Well, you see, I I err more towards the Mobius thing for that. Yeah, it's more so. Yeah, and and I, I can see the two thousand and one. Oh yeah, that, I mean that know? is yeah, that's on the on the face of it. I think the Flash Gordon stuff is to do a little bit with some design stuff there. Yeah, and that's why I think it ends. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you'll find Image do this a lot in their blurbs. They like. You've probably noticed this when I've been reading them out, actually. When you go through uh, the official blurbs on the image site for their comics, they kind of like name drop like films and things that they equate it to. And it's a good sales tactic because anyone that likes Flash Gordon is going to go, oh. But I, myself, upon reading this, I think it has more in common with Mobius and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Definitely. For me, anyway. Um, so it's a little cosmic tale about the destruction of a planet that could be Earth through nuclear war and there's this one lone astronaut who is looking for habitable planets and uh she finds complex life and how she finds the complex life and the journey that goes with it and uh you can feel the influences here it's it's not a coincidence that i'm because after talking about this i'm, I'm going to move on to um a book by somebody a book about somebody called jack kirby you may have heard of him no no uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, it's because this is something that I, I mean, I, I feel that this would not be here without Jack Kirby's influence on the medium as well. Um, I can see a lot of Kirby, Kirby-tastic stuff in here. Um, and I do love it. Um, I love how playfully things move across the page through this 35 panel grid, like perfect geometrical arcs or perfect geometric arcs. Geometrical is not a word, is it? Um, <laughs> it is now. And it makes, Yeah. <laughs> It makes like patterns and shapes across the page. Um, and you get objects and figures bursting through gutters and into the negative space, into the next square. And that is a really interesting thing that this book does. It makes use of the negative space in super interesting ways. Like movement is communicated, communicated by lines of negative space. Mm. So it kind of like, imagine each panel, you've got a grid, a 35 square grid, and each panel is a bubble. And then an object like a rocket flies through and pierces several bubbles. And it brings the negative space with it, if you get me. Like, tears through. And then when a, a sword is swung, it tears through. Or when someone is thrown or, or flies up in the sky, they tear through. Yeah. And it's just this beautiful, um, beautiful way of doing things. Um, it's so effective and alive actually and you can see the definite influence of mobius in the designs of the figures and the technologies and the way the ship and the lone astronaut pilots for example like just echoes mobius's work yeah. the simplicity of the color palette here is another thing that adds to the beauty of this and it's almost instructional blueprint design in places. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. very mathematical yeah it, um, it does have this very like design uh document uh look and uh, at times during some of the panels which i love yeah um it's it's a really cool thing to kind of immerse yourself in and lose yourself in and put some chip tune on in the background um because <laughs> I, I mean like i would say if you're going to listen to this if you can listen to music while reading this 
I, I'd want something electronic, something something low res and electronic, possibly. Yeah, I can see I that. I don't know about you, Leon. Yeah, I can see it. It's either a mix, it's either that or it's like um, some classical music to hit back with 2001, like something, mm. um, something like holy and bombastic that is non lyrical. Um, yeah, because this this goes places. Yeah, yeah. And the the kind of the influence of geometry there and the shapes and everything else is it's just it's a beautiful piece of art. It is, and I would say, um, it is. It's probably I'd say it's quite groundbreaking. I don't know about you. Well, that's the thing. Like I would say, this is one of the best comic books I've read in a long time. And we read a lot yeah. of good comic books on, on the for this show. We do. Um, we do. <laughs> but like this, from the first, I mean, from the cover, I thought that anything usually, I'm a mark for, for if you have a cover where it's like it, it shows a rocket taking off and then the colors are all this like uh, sort of low tone with like a, and a dark, a dark navy purple ish, uh, and there's a rocket taking off and it has that sort of 40s, 50s space age look. I'm gonna open the page, you know. I'm I'm gonna open the page. That, that's me. That's what happens. And then if if the first page was the first couple of pages, just has arcs and then like mushroom clouds. I'm gonna keep turning pages, but I think that had it just been like, okay, cool. This is like um, this is a, a 2001 and Mobius inspired book. Blah blah blah. That would been that's that would been fine enough. And say it was just done more standardly with less panels per page and uh, I know exposition. Blah blah. It would be uh, like it'd be enjoyable enough. But the fact that there's not one spoken word in this whole bit. Uh, the fact that at times following the panels, it's like playing snakes and ladders, <laughs> where like. You're just going up, you're going down, and you're just following it. And there's no arrow telling you where to go. It's just the shape of the pan shape of the panel indicates the direction you should be going, just by there being one curved edge or something like that. It it just yeah. I, for me, this is a, this is a joy to read because I echo everything you said about the design, the color palette, just how everything is staged and look and like geometry being a, a Big one. Like um, earlier on, um, there is a page which is like after this like nuclear holocaust that has happened, and the way how how a lot of it's been presented at this point is either uh, the way I can best explain it. It's like say um, you have an image and you put you put an image down on a table, and then on top of that image you start to do a jigsaw puzzle. And someone else comes later and starts to remove bits of that jigsaw puzzle and notices there's an image under. That's what it kind of has that feeling of. where And, yeah. it, and that sort of replicates the feeling for me of, say, in a visual medium like a, a movie or a television show, when you get, like, um, silent or wordless uh, jump cuts to, um, like, another setting. And they don't tell you anything, but it's like... It'd be like in these earlier pages, you see a mushroom cloud in silence and then you'd cut to the destruction and then you cut back to another one and then you cut back to destruction elsewhere. Like it, it just, it has this thing where it starts to, and obviously the whole thing is like the more panels you have, the uh, sort of higher the pace is going to be because there's something new happening 
there's more th new things happening per page than normal. And this plays with that in such a cool way because you'll still have the, the grid in ways, um, but at times it will just be like you, uh, you're behind a, a pane or something, like a window, uh, because sometimes it's just the same image of the gutters in your way. And then different squares are the different actions that are happening. And then beyond that, like three or four of the squares are one big image behind the other images. So like it all just sort of um, uh, like it just comes alive in its own way. And it, it, it at times it feels like it echoes out from one panel. And like, uh, like I was saying earlier on, there's a, a page where during all the destruction and then at the top of the page, the panels are all one image behind the gutters, and it's like a ravaged like cityscape. And then below that is an image of like um, a tractor and, a, and someone like uh, planting seeds, um, with all like the like dust and smoke behind them. But then the tractor and the person are in front of the gutters, while the background is behind the gutters, uh, and it's just has it, like so they sort of it gives the image depth because they're sort of like there, like the tractor's a person, but like the two things, the, the person and the thing are in the foreground and they're, they're like, they're given so much depth by just doing that. But then there's just like other cool things. Like when you see the rocket, it's broken down as if you bought it from Ikea and you're going to build it. Mm. Um, there's so much, um, because there's no dialogue, all of it is just done with such economical but clean uh, visuals. So like there's a lottery, I'm not, I'm not gonna describe the whole story, don't worry, but uh, that, that there's a lottery to decide who um, who gets to go into, into space. And the way that whole sequence is done, the way how certain panels are like, most of them are squares and then some are circles and the way that all relates to each other, the way how it has, there's two panels where it's like the same person's face but it shows such a jumping time uh, that it just feels that that's why I get like big 2001 vibes. Cause obviously a big famous thing of that movie is that you ha uh, it has, it has a, it has a, a match on uh, shape that um, it, it spans a million years in one cut. And this obviously yeah. is not as dramatic, but it still has the snappy clean thing of like, Boom! Like things are happening, and so, so much is conveyed without us having to be be told the nitty gritty. Like you, everything you need is on the page, and it it is doing all this while still having space because it has so many panels to truly warp your mind with <laughs> all mm. these cool shapes. Yeah. For sure, my um my favorite page in this. Uh, I will refer to simply as Cube World. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> because I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. No, that uh, that is striking because it's yeah it's something where I think you've seen elements of it before elsewhere, but not all wrapped up in that way. So that when you first see Cube World, your mind is kind of blown because it's just like this is like. Because I think one of the problems you often get with like uh, alien stuff, and I don't mean alien as an extraterrestrial, but also I do, but like stuff that's just not of Earth in a way, which I guess is extraterrestrial. Anyway, but um, one of the problems with that is always quite humanoid and it's always quite like 
they're, it's like the Star Trek kind of thing where it's like, yeah, they're kind of like mm. us, but they just wear weird clothes and all have like pointy ears or something like that. And bony growths on their forehead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so when you get thing, something like a cube world, it kind of like, because the geometry there is completely different. It just changes how you comprehend yeah. of how, how they live, uh, mm. which is cool. Because, like, um, what well, it's hard to talk about some of these things, but, like, one of my favourite, like, two pages is where, I'm just going to say, it's one, of, it's, it's one of those pages where the gutters are being broken through by something as, as the yeah, rocket flies yeah. through space. And then there's a cool, it's, it's page to page, there's a cool bit where, so we've got all the, 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 the 35 uh, panel grid structure, which is at times less than that, because sometimes the images w will be larger and then the boxes will just all be combined into one. But then you have a cool one too, where they seemingly have, uh, they seemingly put someone behind the gutters when for the whole time they've been on top. And it yeah. has this cool idea of like, it just conveys so much like isolation and sort of feeling like sort of trapped and, and imprisoned um, when seeing the freedom of something outside, um, which is as fake yeah. as that can be. And it's so effective uh, and it's just so seemingly simply conveyed that this whole book just was blow my mind constantly. And they do they do this really cool thing where uh, there's another cool page another cool moment where um they explain how two objects land on a planetoid yeah uh, yes and they land yes. at opposite sides of the planetoid like one on the south pole and one on the north pole <laughs> so good and they flip the page upside down and it's gorgeous <laughs> it's it's so good even yeah. even the um, the preceding stuff we've gone up to the landing of that with, with all the yeah uh, sort of orbits and all that it it's just it's really good. Mm. And uh, yeah, so this is a book called Hedra. It is a one shot. Uh, it is by um, a singular artist and writer. Um, we've got a lot of one man bands going on today. Uh, this is Jesse Lonegran. So uh, Jesse Lonegan uh, did this and is published by Image Comics and you can check it out now. And I'll just add that um, on top of that all, Obviously, the rocket design, the uh, the location design, like the the planets and structures and stuff, and the character design is all really, really cool. It's all my jam. So, last thing on our list today is something that I read, which I picked up because this is um this is something that I think has been something that we've needed for a long, long time, and I'm glad that it finally exists. This is Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics. Now, this is by Tom Scioli, entirely the work of Tom Scioli, lettering, art, colours, everything, uh, writing. Uh, this is published by 10 Speed Press, which are part of Crown Publishing. Um, and let's get into it. So... You cannot deny how important Jack Kirby was to the medium. We've talked about Jack Kirby's contributions to comics on this show in previous episodes. And I will often bang on at length, especially when I've got a few drinks in me, <laughs> about how his work <laughs> and, and about, about how his work has given us comics as we know them today. Without his work, comics as we know them today might not exist. 
what we have here is a biography of sorts. Uh, the story of the life of Jack Kirby, meticulously researched and told through excerpts from interviews and other books and sources, compiled into a graphic novel with love and care by one Tom Scioli. Now, Tom Scioli, um, we've dropped his name before in reference to the Marvel book, Fantastic Four Grand Design, which he worked on. Um, he has a very distinctive style. Uh, it's this beautiful cartoon style that has a lot in common with the art we see in Silver and Golden Age comics. Um his work is aged intentionally to give it this warm analog feel. It has a nostalgic aesthetic that I think works very well for this kind of story. Um, he has a very dense style, which lets him pack large amounts of information into a relatively economical space. So what this is, this is a, a biography. Um, it is a graphic biography of the life of Jack Kirby from his uh, early childhood um, his parents coming to the US from Austria, um, his early childhood right up to his death. So it packs a lot of information in there. His entire career in comics is covered in this. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And it's really good to finally have all of this in one place. Like, I mean, you can watch the interviews, you can read the other excerpts in the interviews and things like that. And, and you can, you can, but to have it all kind of like condensed into one book, into one hardback mm. is really cool. Um, I love that the way he does this, he keeps the design of Jack himself a little more abstract than the other figures in the story. They, he highlighted this does it by doing this. He highlights him as someone special and keeps him looking forever hopeful and wide eyed. Um, the, the character of Jack in the story, uh, the way he draws Jack Kirby for the most part, he has large blue eyes that, that seem to be like hopeful and like gleaming and young. Um, like he, it basically just paints him as a man with ideas beyond his time that will outlast generations. Mm in the same way that we all have this inner image of ourselves and imagine ourselves as forever young. This is what's going on with Jack here in the story. And it's a beautiful moment where Jack looks in the mirror and realizes that he isn't a young man anymore. And his reflection is a more, his reflection is a more realistic representation in line with the rest of the characters in the book, with the rest of the cast. So, I mean, this book is trips through people's memories. It is in um, first person as if you're talking to someone around a dinner table and they're telling you these stories. Uh, we get, from Jack's point of view, we get from um, a little bit from Stanley's point of view, um, and and stuff like that. It just it's it's in a similar way to the way that the Fantastic Four Grand Design books are put together and laid out. In that we're getting these stories told by each member of the Fantastic Four. So you've got some of it in Sue's voice, some of it in Ben's voice, some of it in Johnny's voice, and some of it in Reed's voice. So it's that kind of thing. And there's like a portion of it in Jack's voice, the portion of it in Jack's wife's voice, the portion of it in Stanley's voice, etc. And, um, it's trips through people's memories in a bygone era in first person. It's anecdotes from the early days of the industry. Uh, it was wonderful to learn more about the man that was basically the second Genesis of everything I hold dear <laughs> <laughs> to my heart and soul. So yeah, I mean, <clears throat> like, through this book, we learn about his childhood, his earliest days in his career of comics, his time in the army, his most important work at Marvel and DC, and all the frustration and anguish that came with it. His struggle for recognition, like his whole life, it seemed that 
all he wanted was what was his. He wanted to be recognized properly. He wanted to be compensated fairly. Um, like you can see how hard this man worked and, and through this, this story, you can see how the, the industry basically chewed him up and spat him out. Uh, I mean, he poured his heart and soul into everything that he did and he used his experiences, his traumas, his sadness, his anger and his joy, and he channeled it into his work. And there's a quote from Jack Kirby, actually, that I feel is quite relevant right now um, to the way this story paints how he worked and how he channeled everything he had into his into his work. I feel that my characters all have some part of my character. I feel that they're all me in some way, certainly not in individuality, but they all bear elements of what I feel. So in creating characters like the Silver Surfer and things like that, he has, you know, he puts a little bit of himself into everything. Mm. And yeah, I mean, you can see that in telling this story, Tom Scioli has poured his heart and soul into this work. And it really is a labor of love. It really does do justice to the memory of Jack Kirby, I feel. Uh, for someone like me running a humble podcast like this out of the pure and undying love for the comics medium, a book like this is pure gold, plain and simple. Um, and I, I recommend it to anybody. I, I think you should check it out, Leon. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I did, I did want to uh, try and get it read for this uh, episode, but I couldn't couldn't make it work. But um, the, the thing with Jack, uh, Jack Kirby is that I know, like, broad strokes about him, um, but I yeah. don't know, like, not even the nitty-gritty. I don't know some of the connecting tissue of even some of the the bigger, more famous things that he's done. So I feel like it would be very informative for me. Yeah, it's it's a good story. I mean, like a lot of I mean, it will tell it tells you in the front of the book that this is by no means an official biography. It's not like, you know, Marvel have had no input, DC have had no input, Jack's estate have had no input. Um, this is all just the work of Tom Scioli and this is him drawing from millions of different sources and researching it quite meticulously uh, the events and what 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 happened where and and how how it might have happened and things like that and and you know all the stuff that went on the famous the stuff that famously went on between Jack Kirby and Marvel yeah um all of that and everything else and uh, his uh his kind of like frustrations with Stan and everything. It's all in there. So it's worth checking it out. It's, um, it's a good, it's a good book. And, uh, for any comics fan, totally worth it. And yeah. It, I mean, like I can't say I knew everything about Jack Kirby before checking this out. I, I, you know, I can't say I was like an expert or anything, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's eye opening and it's enlightening. And if you have any, any questions you may have had about Jack Kirby at all, like could can be answered by this book, I guess, in a way. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting, and it's 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 good that this now exists and can be on the bookshelf, and you know, it's something that it's a part it's a part of history, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's cool. It's kind of wild because um, it's 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 almost like I'm trying to think of like even the appropriate some person in a different medium who's like so influential but so you had a book about van gogh yeah i guess so but like even then it's like i feel like more of van gogh's influence is more apparent uh than a character uh like kirby who is super influential but 
like seemingly sidelined in terms of perceived yeah. influence, which is yeah incredible and wild. Mm. Yeah, exactly. You cannot deny this man's influence. Like, did, I'd I'd say he was he was more important than any of them. I think back then. I'd like to say that anyway. I'd like to be able to say that. Um, and like, I guess um, maybe maybe you could compare it to having a book about like a um, if you had a book about the life of a famous director, a really influential director, maybe. Mm. I think part of it, what uh, I was thinking just now is maybe it's as if like, if you had a book talking about like, um, like the sort of rock and roll pioneers, the sort of black artists from like the 30s, 40s and 50s who like pioneered it before it was like taken over in the mainstream and then white white artists uh, like Elvis and, and the Stones and so on gain the popularity from that but maybe it's sort of akin to that where it's like even though that stuff is like instrumental and core uh the general public doesn't really know too much about those pioneers yeah i i in fact i would exactly say that it's along it's along those kind of lines yeah um but that is Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the Kim and Comics. You can pick that up. I've got a really nice hardback. Um, you can pick it up. Uh, it's available in most places where books are sold. Uh, that is by Tom Scioli, and that is published on Ten Speed Press, which are part of Crown Publishing. And that brings us to the end of our comics for today. Um, and if we move on to the pull list now. So the pull list is pretty stark right now. Um Checking over the next two weeks, there's not an awful lot that I'm too massively, massively excited for. But what I did want to bring up and what I was discussing with Leon, like pre-cast, is the fact that they are bringing Lock and Key back. Lock and Key's back again for a three-issue series. Uh, this is uh, Lock and Key in Pale Battalions Go. And um, this is... Um, a three-issue series that is part of the Lock and Key Golden Age stuff. So this is going to fall under um, the uh, the same kind of bracket, along with everything like Open the Moon, Guide to the Known Keys, Grindhouse, Small World, Dog Days, which we talked about on the cast last year. Mm. Um, during this discussion, that came up, and I couldn't believe that that was last year, but it was. <laughs> it was the end of last year. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, Impales Battalion Go, and there's going to be three of these. So um, that's worth looking out for. And that is going to be um, somewhere around the 26th of August. So in shops, 26th of August, 2020. Soon. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, if it's safe for you to go to your local comic shop right now, then I would suggest going to your LCS to pick this up. If it's not safe to go to your LCS... Um, and you really want to read it, grab it digitally. But um, I put preference on grabbing a hard copy over digital right now because they need your money. Yeah. <laughs> the comic shops need your money to stay alive right now. So, yeah, especially with, with everything that's going on with COVID, with the, uh, the, I mean, in Britain, with the intermittent shutdowns of everything and um, how, how that's going to hit the economy. Um, if you can get to your LCS safely and you can, you can do things safely. 
Um, if your LCS is open, then do go grab a hard copy. Um, now, other things on the list, uh, I wanted to check out Dark Knight's Death Metal. And this is something that's been, I've wanted to check out. This is something that started while Leicester was still under quarantine rules. Um, and I didn't manage to get to pick it up and I didn't buy it digitally. And I think I've, I feel like I've missed the boat a little bit. And now I'm kind of like, I'm not going to bother with this now till it's a trade. <laughs> yeah. But Sometimes on my, like um, yeah, on my pull list, I've got Dark Knights, Death Metal, Legends of the Dark Knights, which um, is basically a collection of tales from this current, this Dark Knights event that's happening right now, which um, if I read this out, Leon's brain's going to blow up because it's just going to... So I'm going to read this from the Wikipedia page. <laughs> Following the final battle between Batman and the Batman Who Laughs, the source wall is shattered, causing a chain of events that frees Perpetua from her cosmic prison. Despite Apex Lex capturing the, the Batman Who Laughs, the latter reveals that the future Lex saw was a hoax made by Perpetua in order to manipulate him after his revelation. Perpetua strips Lex from his powers and returns him to Earth. Meanwhile, the Justice League survived their battle with Perpetua after they were saved by the Quintessence, who revealed that they were protecting something very important and then sent the League to an unknown location in order to search it. Somewhere, Tempest Fujinort revised several Earths from the Dark Multiverse and then recruits Wally West to access Metron's Mobius chair, which is upgraded with Dr. Manhattan's powers, to restore the balance between the Light and Dark Multiverses. This action causes Wally to become a new persona and with his new powers, he wants to mend all of reality into one single timeline. But the presence of the Batman who laughs prevents that from happening. <sighs> I'm just going to read Hedra again. Uh, that, that was all too much for me. So that's the lead up to it. Yeah, that's, that's everything that like, leads up to this. I, I, and then like I can't do the main this. story itself is going to be like... <laughs> They're calling it the anti-crisis, okay? That's all you need to know. <laughs> I just can't. I can't do it. I can't deal with this stuff. I can't deal I'm with I'm buying the trade. I'm buying the trade. <laughs> How many supplementary <laughs> comics are you going to need around that? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm not even going to. Like, this is why I'm buying the trade. I'm just going to wait for them to collect it all into one big old softback, and I'm going to buy that right now because I've... I think I've missed too much for it to be like a, a viable thing for me to collect anymore. And I just, I can't be bothered with going back searching for everything. And I mean, sometimes I get tired of that stuff too. I mean, it doesn't sound like I ever do, but sometimes I do. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, what, I will what, come what, back to what it. version of, of Greg is that? Is this Apex Greg? Is this the future fake Greg? <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is enhanced with Manhattan powers, Greg. This is, uh, <laughs> oh god, oh god, no, 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 stop, stop right now. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm gonna go to Mars and then come back from Mars when the trade's available. <laughs> um, and I can read it all at once because I'm not gonna dive into it now. I just want the whole thing start to finish as one saga, basically. Uh, I'm not gonna dive in now where it's at. Um, so other things on the pull list, um, we've got Ice Cream Man number 20. Uh, these are all out on uh, the 58th, by the way. Um, and we've also got Alien, the original screenplay. Uh, so what Dark Horse have done is they've got um, an adaptation going on of the original screenplay of Alien. 
So a comic adaptation of the screenplay before it became a movie. Um, adapted from the original 1976 Dan O'Bannon screenplay. That's interesting. Um, yeah, so this is going to be something to, uh, to, to look out for and maybe check out. Um, and uh, so en route back to Earth, the crew of the starship Snark intercepts an alien transmission. They, their investigation leads them to a desolate planetoid, crashed alien spacecraft, and a pyramidic structure of unknown origin. And then the terror begins. So that's out on uh, August 5th. So that's going to be something to look out for. I might be checking that out. It sounds wildly different from the actual alien film. Yeah, I can't remember so the for, like, history of this or like the script version. Yeah. But yeah, it could be interesting. I, I do like the idea of um, uh, adapting stuff from scripts. Mm. But like from a script that hasn't seen the light of day, yeah. it makes it even better, doesn't it? Um. There's another, th- this is like, so Ice Cream Man number 20. Um, it just says here that the title of the story is Four Kids. And then we've got like this little poem thing going on, which is one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, three fish, four fish, have some more fish, five fish, six fish, are you sickish? Seven fish, eight fish, it's getting late, fish. Nine fish, ten fish, everyone you love will die and life is pointless, so why even get out of bed, you little worm, you sick little insect, with your sad flailing arms and creepy crawly legs. My God, I've never seen such a pathetic specimen of how of how sad, how truly tragic red fish, blue fish. <laughs> so make of that what you will. Yeah, and, it's like uh, reading the, someone's live journal. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the cover is uh, good old Rick in his ice cream man uniform, sitting there in a, uh, a chair with some photographs of some weird stuff, like close-ups of eyes and things, looking at what appears to be a children's book, um, and there's a bunch of skulls in a fire behind him. So it's, uh, it's pretty creepy. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, and that wraps up the pool list. Oh, so I'm also going to be delving into some older comics, by the way. I've got these Batman Elseworlds books. Because I feel like I've been reading too much. I feel like I've been getting too high art recently. Yeah, and you gotta, uh, I feel like I need to... <laughs> yeah, you got to turn that way down. <laughs> I need to tone it down a bit. So uh, I'm going to be back on my Greg bullshit with my Batman Elseworlds collection. Um, I've got... And uh, I'll be catching up on all the books I've missed. All my huge stack of comics that I bought uh, when my LCS finally opened. So, Yeah. Uh, that has been Ace Comicals episode 93. You can find us at www.acecomicals.com. Uh, kind of the hub for everything we do. You can find us to listen to us on pretty much anywhere. You can find a podcast, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, etc. Apple Podcasts. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Ace Comicals. You can get in touch via our Twitter account. You can at us. You can get involved in the conversation. Uh, if you have any opinions about the things we've discussed, then uh, drop us a bell. Let us know. Tell us what you think. Um, if you have any questions that you want us to answer on cast, get in touch and uh, we'll have some fun questions from you. You can uh, send us questions and uh, feedback to acecomicals at gmail.com. Um, yeah, uh, we have a Facebook uh, we have a Facebook page, facebook.acecomicals. If you are so inclined, you can donate the price of a coffee to keep the lights on here at Ace Comicals, which is... Uh, Kofi.com slash Ace Comicals. Uh, we have t-shirts for sale, which is acecomicals.threadless.com. 
Um, you can find me on Twitter under at Bato, B-A-T-T-O-U. Leon, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Leon Everett. And I just want to add in an RIP to the legendary John Lewis and also screw you, Comicsgate. Indeed. <laughs> and that has been Ace Comicals episode 93. Ace Comicals, over and out.